What's going on, everybody, and welcome to episode 13 of the How's My Hand Path podcast. As always, I'm your host, Shaheen Ekjavani. Uh, this week on the show, we got my good buddy Scott Fawcett on. For those of you who don't know, Scott is the guy who started the Decade Golf System, which is all about um, course management and strategy and target selection, and basically just learning how to optimize your scores by playing smart golf. Um, I'm sure a lot of you already follow him on social media. He loves debating with people on Twitter because he really likes proving his point, and oftentimes he's right. So uh, you guys are really going to like this one, and uh, let's get this ball rolling. All right, dude. Uh, so yeah, Scott, um, actually the first thing I want to ask you literally, um, for the, for the show is, uh, talk to us about your playing career. Cause I know that you obviously played at a pretty damn high level before getting into this accidental golf venture that you called it. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, I played all sports growing up as a kid. I actually never really even specialized in golf until I got to college. I played uh, a year at Sam Houston state and did, did fairly well, won a tournament. And so I was transferred to Texas A&M where I finished up playing uh, D1 college golf. I went and then played professionally on the Hooters tour and over in Asia and basically every single tour except for the one you want to play on. I actually would say I was even <clears throat> quasi-moderately successful. I mean, I won 10 different times, but I never got through second stage. And, you know, luckily for me, a certain electricity company uh, which I still own and run to this day in 2002, which is really why I accidentally quit. Well, then I got to playing pretty good golf and I got to playing, excuse me, I got to playing underground poker here in town. I met Chris Como uh, in about 2003 or four, actually way before he obviously became Chris Como. Well, he was actually Chris Como at the time, but before he became the Chris Como. I think the, 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 tiger, the tiger effect made him the Chris Como to some degree. Yeah. Well, that's what's so funny is that was seriously, he and I sat in my office in 2005 or six, probably. And we designed a strategy, how he could become Tiger's coach. Like it, it's, it's funny because he was considering moving to Vegas and playing professional poker. And that's when I got through uh, Q school in 2008 as a 35 year old amateur, which was, um, you know, it was his first good player, his first player with status to work with. And I can, it's, it's not a, it's not a total leap to say that the only reason Como became Tiger's instructor was because I got through second stage of Q school <laughs> as an amateur. It's, it's not a leap. Otherwise he'd be in Vegas, uh, a, a poker professional potentially. So, you know, I've, I've, I've played, you know, at the highest level and not necessarily successfully. And I, I think it's, it's interesting because the, the tour player that I was mentioning before we came on about, arguing uh, he's appealing to his authority as a tour winner and I'm like I've certainly possessed at different stages in my life the physical skill set to to every single category driving approach shots and putting all of those categories to basically be in the top 30 in the world now I never really had a great short game but I'll tell you that the the math really shows like Nicholas knew you actually don't really need to have that great of a short game um, your short game kind of gets better commensurate to whatever your skill level is just through general kinesthetic awareness. And so even though I never played on tour, I feel like I basically have a pretty solid functional awareness of what those guys are most importantly, not what they do, but what they're capable of. Like I know the upper bounds of, you know, that's about as good as a driver can be hit or that's about as good as iron shots can be hit. You know, you're never going to be perfect. Yeah. And that's what I was always chasing and, and obviously falling short of 
but that was what infected my mental game to where I, I really believe that so much of what I teach that I'm good at now is because I was so bad at it when I was a playing professional. Is that, uh, so how did you get into this whole decade thing? I guess let's, let's kind of roll into it. What, uh, like well, what, what was the, what was it that led you to even considering starting this? So it, again, it's, it's like Steve Jobs says, you can only connect the dots looking backwards. And it's funny cause I've got several math related degrees. I'm kind of a math nerd. I've, I've played, you know, golf at quasi basically the highest levels. And when I entered Q school in 2008, it was because I had a buddy, we were just out at dinner and he said, you know, I said that I was definitely better as a 35 year old with a full-time job than I was as a 25 year old playing professional. And he asked me why. And I said, well, it's just because I, I understand, you know, through, through poker, to be perfectly honest, I understand how to apply expectation math to and strategy to the game of golf. Like, so basically we're just taking a poker mindset of a, of a million hands versus one hand and applying that then to the game of golf. And so that was really where it first started was just a general understanding of that idea that you can't be perfect. So we need to consider a, a, a range of possible outcomes from any given shot or target. And then I you know, went back and played for a few years. And then that's about the time that Mark Brody's book, Every Shot Counts, was coming out detailing the new strokes gain statistics in 2013, whenever I got my amateur status back for the second time. And so, you know, I felt like I still had a couple years to really try to put some work into my game to try to win the U.S. Mid-Am to play in the Masters. That was the goal. And so I, I then wrote a bunch of Excel spreadsheets because I have nothing better to do with my time, apparently, and in essence solved course management. So that was really the genesis of taking it to, like, the, the next level of lunacy, essentially. And so once I completed all that work and it was time to use that for my own game in 2014, I, I had some nagging elbow injuries and got a cortisone shot and the, the doctor paralyzed my right arm. And that's the whole reason actually that I, I was going to play in the Texas Sam in 2014. But after I had that injury, I, I couldn't. So I caddied for Will Zalatoris and, you know, at the time he was just a 17 year old high school punk. And <clears throat> caddy for him, and the guy winds up winning. And I, I told him, if you'll just do everything I tell you to, you'll win. I, I didn't actually believe it, but lo and behold, he wins. And some coaches, some college coaches, like, you know, Alan Bratton, the Oklahoma State coach, who I've known all the way dating back to junior golf, and more importantly, Jason Enloe at SMU, they're like, you know, you've got something here to teach. You know, once I then caddied for Will and he won the U.S. Junior, I also realized, wow, I, I'm definitely doing, I'm, I'm doing something here that, is, is impacting the way his results are going, but almost as much as anything, listening to, especially at the U.S. Junior, where most of the kids that we were playing against had a caddy, listening to what these other junior golfers were talking about, the shot selection that they were about to try with their caddy, and I'm like, this is ridiculous. You have no chance of. <laughs> I mean, yes, you might pull that. You might pull that shot off, but there's no chance you pull that shot off enough that it's you know the mathematically correct play, and that's really where I started realizing essentially what you mean is like over, over time, it'll expose them on a shot where the odds don't end up in their favor. Yeah. I mean, it's like betting on green and roulette. Is it going to work out? Sure. Every once in a while, but it certainly isn't going to work out enough that that's the play. I mean, obviously no play in roulette is mathematically positive, but if you've got one bet to make, like you have one golf shot to hit and one shot, you're, only, you're not, you're not going green shot. basically. Yeah, I go green. Yeah. And that's what these kids were going green shot after shot. And I'm like, again, it was almost sad. I, it, it's funny actually. Cause Will 
beat Davis Riley, who just won yesterday uh, on the Corn Ferry Tour. He beat him in the finals, and uh, it was Davis had lost the prior year in the finals also. And I, I really felt bad as it was happening because I was like, poor kid's going to lose back-to-back years in the finals of the junior. I can't imagine how painful that has to be. And they, Will and Davis actually live together now. And so I was recording the first little podcast that we're going to put in the new Decade Foundations app with Will in their apartment the other day. And Davis came walking in and he's trying to be all quiet and he's in his room. And here we are kind of laughing and joking about the genesis of Decade and, and catting for him at the U.S. Junior. And everyone's like, like, sorry, Davis. It's just <laughs> funny to hear him in there. No problem. Well, but he, yeah, ended up getting, he ended up getting the W, yeah. so he's doing something right. That, that's literally what I, I – I literally sent him the text yesterday when he won. I was just like, well, I guess that's the best way to get the last lap for us prodding you, uh, needling you on Sunday is going ahead and <laughs> not locking up a tour card. But you give a guy of Davis's ability a, a win in the first three starts of the year, barring injury, that, that guy will be on the PGA Tour next year, which is great. He's, he's a great dude, hard worker. Um, I started working with him more up close about this time, uh, I don't know, about a year ago. I guess it's probably more towards April. And it's just interesting to watch a kid just – he's just trying to be a little too aggressive and force a few too many decisions here and there, a few too many shots, and get him to kind of lighten the workload too. And within 12 months, he's essentially a tour member. So you um, you mentioned, obviously, kind of briefly, Mark Brody's Every Shot Counts book. For those that are listening in, that's a wonderful book that I use a lot uh, with my own instruction. Have you spoken to Mark about the book before creating the system, or you just kind of read oh, the yeah. book itself? Well, actually, what's interesting is I sent him an email, like just unsolicited, right around when when I was going to caddy for Wilt, the U.S. Junior, just saying, "Hey, I did something that you know with your strokes game stuff, where I essentially applied it to shot patterns to solve strategy. You know, Will's going to win the Texas Sam Watch. It'll be kind of fun." And he was like, "Wow!" And he sends me an email right after. He's like, "Wow, it actually worked!" And so it, we have had a, a, a good friendship you know, for, I guess, almost six years now, crazy as that is to say, um, where again, it's, it's math. It's interesting because people, you know, David Ogren and, and Mark and I had lunch one time and, and David's like, is there anything you guys disagree on? And, and I said, you know, it's just math. You can't disagree on two plus two. But what I will say is after I say that that other tour player was had an appeal to authority with his playing background, I, I do say all the time that anything that Mark and I, materially disagrees the wrong wrong word but we we differ in our interpretation of the results it's always because i am using my ability as a player to be like you know i get it the data says that but that's really not what's possible and so that's more of an unintentional result of week-to-week variance which is why this week just happened to be better but you can't go out and intentionally hit you know a, a lower proximity with the same amount of greens of regulation week in, week out, there's just a more efficient way to do it than by going out and attacking flags. But I'm also using a lot of my ability as a player to kind of inform that, that decision, if you will. So how many shots have you analyzed? How many shots have you analyzed in coming up with a system? I would imagine it's literally millions. I mean, initially, so when I first created this system, I wrote a, a half a billion cells of Excel code that every cell had over 50 formulas in it, like, I mean, billions, it, you know, because it's all theoretical modeling at that point. Yeah. What I did, because, again, I have nothing better to do with my time, once Como got hired by Tiger, um, again, because 
I've caddied for Will when he won the Texas Am and U.S. Junior in 2014. That's the August is when Como got hired by Tiger. And so that fall, I was able to get access to shot length from, from that relationship. And as a result, then I actually could just download not the shot link data of where Tiger hit every shot to, like the Excel spreadsheets, but the actual PDFs that show those shot tracker images of where the ball went to. And then I, have, I went by hand through just over 20,000 of his shots, like I say, again, by hand, plotting, okay, this shot was from 158, the pin was four yards from a bunker, four yards from the left edge, left was a bunker, his shot finished 20 feet right of the pen. I mean, I technically have no idea where he was, you know, air quotes, aiming that shot. But when you look at 20,000 of them, a very clear pattern emerges. And essentially, I, I can't say he played with perfect decade strategy because I hadn't even come up with the acronym decade at that point. But basically, Tiger played pretty much mathematically perfect golf. And to do that just intuitively, not intuitively, it, 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 to do that by learn, I don't think anything is intuition or innate. I think that everything in life is learned. Um, you know, you didn't fall out of the womb. Tiger didn't fall out of the womb knowing how to play perfect golf. Yeah. He's learned through trial and error how to make that, uh, make that actually work for him. So would you say that Tiger has obviously a huge influence on the system itself? He has no influence on the system whatsoever. The system is 100% based in math. Okay. He 100% validates it, though. Perfect. Okay, that's a, that's a good answer. I like it. Yeah, so I, I like that. But here's, here's the follow-up then. How close to, I guess, perfect math decade was Tiger in winning the Masters this last year? I mean, the final round is the most decade round of golf I've ever seen in my life. It's really interesting because, you know, so a lot of what I talk about is uh, I'm, I'm dogmatic about hitting at one shape. And I do, from my own experience, know that you can play even hitting your irons only one direction. It, it can be done. I'm not that a plus four is tour quality anymore, but considering I don't play any golf, I'm not even a member at a country club, <laughs> considering I entered Q school and shot 11 under, um, this last year as a, as a joke proves that you, it's not about being able to hit a bunch of different shots. And so Tiger, he, he, he did play, um, you know, and with approach shots, he does work the ball and it, and it's hard. It doesn't impact him as much as with the driver with speed, he double crosses the vast majority of his misses. So I would say that he does not play very decadey off the tee, but then into the greens, if you think about that final round last year, he never, there was never this just fist pump Tiger Woods emotional outpouring because the round was so perfect. He hit it to a foot on 16 and on seven, and then he birdied the par fives. Aside from that, he was just sitting in the middle of the green two putting all day and letting everybody else shoot themselves in the foot. And next thing you know, he's won the tournament, which is exactly what you heard Nicholas talk about doing all the time. It's exactly what he did there. And it's just so interesting to, to look at a guy like Molinari, who's, a reigning British Open champion at the time. He and he <clears throat> on 12 is firing at that pin. If there's any, if there's any pin that even the lay just watching it on TV golfer knows that you don't attack, it's the back right pin on 12. At least he was like attacking it. Brooks was aiming at the middle of the green, and he even said that he kind of was hoping he pushed it over there by the pin. I'd rather you just fired at it and at least aggressively 
swing at it than just hoping you flare it technically hoping you flared into the long right portion of your shot pattern like that just doesn't even doesn't even exist yeah like it the flare the so flares are going to come really high and high and spinny and short most often into the right for a righty <laughs> yeah yeah i mean and it's just so interesting to watch again a guy like brooks basically make that that mental error and the flip side is francisco makes this a, a mental error of aiming at the pin and then here comes tiger along just right between the two bunkers two putts moves on like, I hate saying it's that easy because it's not that easy. It's obviously really hard to do. But I, I do, the further I get into this, and even going out, I spent all last week in Phoenix watching a ton of different people play golf. I saw, play by golf, the way, not, not, to, not to cut you off, but I saw Jeff's photo of you being a total nerd on the 16th hole with your laptop out. <laughs> he asked me the question. That was a setup. He asked me a question knowing I'd get out my laptop. Um, <laughs> yeah, Really, I mean, it is, it's just such an amazing place. But, but there are just a ton of people who are for sure better than the results um, would indicate. And, and not to throw – I won't mention the name because I don't want to throw the guy under the bus, but one of my players said that he made the turn, and he was like, you know, it was just kind of just kind of bored, and I just kind of wanted to make something happen. So 10, the pin was on the dead back left, uh, four yards from the back left. And he, he's out there 187. And he and his caddy is like, you know what? I'm I'm sick of this. I'm just gonna fire at one. And he tries to draw it. He like he tries to draw it to the back left pin and lands in the fringe and kicks down long left, makes double. And what's so funny is in having the conversation with him on the putting green, I'm like, did it ever really dawn on you that the exact shot you hit, if you had had the correct decade target, which should have been about six yards right of that pin, that you actually would have hit it to the foot with the shot you hit? It's like, nope. <laughs> That's what's so funny about it is shot patterns are so big and there's they're so like random and, and chaotic you really and i can't you can't aim 30 yards away from the pin and say this but if you're aiming within you know from 150 to 220 yards if you're aiming anywhere within about five to ten yards of the pin you actually because of variance within your pattern you won't hit very many more close by aiming it directly at it versus aiming 15 or 20 feet away from it, it and it's so hard to wrap your head around that which again, like I, I said this, this summer, I, I had surgery a year ago on my neck so I could play some more golf. And I got to where I was playing a little bit this summer. At least I was hitting some balls and was having fun. I played the, the Texas Am and the U.S. Mid-Am and was having fun with it. Well, I wanted to play some more golf tournaments, so I entered Q School basically as a joke because I really wanted to play a 72-hole golf tournament. You know, I've, I've been teaching this stuff for a few years, but I haven't really got to implement it very often. I just wanted to go out and play an actual golf tournament where I cared about what I shot in metal play for 72 straight holes and see what it's like. And it's really, really, really hard to do. There's, there's nobody on earth who believes more of what I teach than me, obviously. But going out there and actually implementing it, you know, the, the, the main thing is, if you've got a target, let's just say that decade tells you your target should be 15 feet left of a pin that's five yards from the right edge. You have to pick that target and then really try to hit it there, not pick that target and then hope you push it over there by the pin. And that's, that's the hardest thing I, I really think in golf. I, I did a seminar in Miami a couple of weeks ago and Gonzalo Fernandez Castaño was in it. And I've got this part where I'm in my, seminar where I'm always talking about this and then I play a clip from Tiger saying I play aggressively to my spots and 
you know, basically talking about picking a target and then really trying to hit it there. And, you know, here's a guy who's played on the PJ tour for 15 years or whatever. And he just kind of sat back and he shook his head and laughed. And I was like, I gotta be honest. I don't know if you're laughing at me because this is so stupid or laughing at yourself because you're so stupid. And he's like, Oh, it's myself. And I'm like, I actually knew it was. He's like, I do that six times around and I've always known it's dumb, but I've never really stopped to think about how dumb. And that's the key. That's what Tiger did not do, no matter the situation. And he just played perfect golf. I mean, I understand we would, it would be nice to get a birdie look on 12 at Augusta, but as Tiger proved, it certainly isn't necessary. And sometimes it is more about avoiding the mistake than it is getting some sort of an actual look at birdie. Okay, that, that's, that's really good because I have two f- questions. First one is very simple. I just want you to give people kind of like your short-term definition of what decade is in case there's a listener who maybe hasn't heard about it yet. So the, the traditional playing lesson advice always talks about middle of the green here or getting a bit more aggressive here. And, and the fact that golf is the only sport that's not played on a uniform court, meaning football, basketball, soccer, cricket, I mean, badminton, every other sport in the world, no matter how stupid it is, it's played on the same field of competition. Right. Golf isn't, which is why saying middle of the green really doesn't accomplish anything because middle of the green at Pebble Beach, very good idea. Middle of the green number 18 at St. Andrews where the green is 52 yards wide, not very helpful. And so even if you give a great playing lesson, the odds of a junior, I always just think of juniors, the odds of the kid or the, the you know, five handicap club member they then have to realize on an away course in real time in a tournament, this match is number six. When Shaheen told me that this is not, it just, it just doesn't work. And so what decade does is it systematizes how to choose a target based on working from the edge of the green. So once I've quantified the size of a shot pattern, as an example, from a hundred yards, you need to be aiming at least five yards from any edge of the green. So if a pin is three or four yards from the left edge, then you're aiming a yard or two out to the right of it. If the pin is five yards, then you're able to aim directly at it. Again, we're not taking weather and the the adjacent hazard, the hazard that the pin is tucked up against. But basically, we walk you through a system to choose how far from the edge of the green to aim. Aim just meaning center your shot pattern. And then you just pull the target, pull the trigger rather. So if you're you know, hitting balls at a white flag on the driving range, in theory, you should be splitting your shot pattern half left of it and half right of it. Most people are skewed one way or the other. So that's, you know, really to where I argue about with people on Twitter about blocking random practice. That's really the main thing that I want to have happen is I want people to be really good at centering their shot pattern over a target. So that way then when they have a decade target out there in the middle, of, you know, of five yards right of the pin, they're able to center their shot pattern almost almost perfectly over that. That's that's the whole goal of block practice, and that's something that you cannot ac- accomplish whatsoever in random. And so people talk about, you know, it's got this, you know, you've confused the mind and it's a better transfer of skills from the range to the golf course physically. Even if that were correct, you're so much worse at aiming your, your shotgun, your shot pattern, that it more than offsets the marginal, I don't think that it's actually correct anyways, the marginal perceived gain 
that you have in, in, in a tighter shot pattern. You're just, you might have a smaller shot pattern, but you're so much worse at aiming it that it doesn't serve you any purpose whatsoever. Right. And one of the things that you kind of mentioned, so basically the, uh, from what I'm gathering, and obviously I've actually never heard you say an actual definition of it. Obviously I know about your system a lot and, and I work with it with players, but I guess based on what I'm gathering is the idea of you're identifying a player's shot pattern and then aiming that shot pattern specific in relation to the edges of the greens so that some shots that are going to be really good are right at the target that you were aligned at. The ones that are misses, some of them might actually be closer to the flag, essentially. 100%. Well, I mean, so whenever, when, when Jeff Smith and I were filming some Course Kings content with Aaron Wise out in Vegas 15 months ago, Aaron was going to hit 27 irons and I was going to use it just to illustrate the absolute size of a, of a tour player's shot pattern to beat. Which, the which is what, which is wider than people think it is too. Oh, it's massive. And it's just so funny because here's Aaron. I said, how far should this go? And he said, 188 is a seven iron and a little bit of altitude. If you look at the shot pattern that's in those videos, 188 and on the center line is actually the only place he didn't hit it. There's like this 15 foot void. <laughs> in the middle of a shot pattern that was actually where he was aiming it. And it's, again, if he hit a million shots, it would fill in. But the fact is 20 shots, he actually didn't hit one within 15 feet of where he's trying to and hit it. So essentially in those 20 iterations of the shot, he would definitely have done better by not aiming at the hole than aiming at the hole. And that's, it's just really, like I say, would that hold true if he was aiming 15 yards away from the pin? No, but as long as he's aiming five or seven yards away from, you know, the, the hole, it just almost doesn't matter for actual how many shots you hit materially close. How often do you get text messages from players saying like, you know, they just made a hole in one, let's say on the corner ferry, and they're like, by the way, I was aiming like, you know, five yards right oh. of that target. <laughs> All the time. I mean, I, I actually... I, I really do get texts like that all the time. And it's, it's hilarious because you'll catch people, you know, I'm, I'm trying to find this, this for this video I'm making right now, I'm trying to find this, this image that I've got from Wyndham Clark using a piece of neon string that he had, instead of using an alignment rod, he had this neon string laid on the ground and he was actually hitting balls right off of it. And it was pretty cool. Cause like, that's a great idea. Cause now you're really training, seeing that line as much as anything. And, and it's just hilarious because here's, he is. He's just not. He's not hitting it anywhere close to where he's actually trying to. And so, so many hole in ones really are from not aiming at it. And and that's like, where was I going with that? One thing that I found while I was looking at that was Brooks Kepka from uh, I can't remember which Players Championship it was. It might have been last year. I don't really remember to be honest. Um, but he shot 63 in the final round, and one of them was with a double eagle on 16. And it's just, he's in there explicitly like, yeah, I wasn't aiming at the pin. I was aiming 15 feet left of it. But then what Zach Blair tagged me in and this, this comment was then in his presser uh, after shooting 63, he's like, yeah, we were out there firing at every pin. Like when he's actually now just trying to look cool, he's, he, he says he's firing at every pin. And yet when he was asked directly after the round, he was like, yeah, I wasn't aiming at that pin at all. The one that actually went in the hole, he said I wasn't aiming at it. <laughs> So basically, a lot of tour players might say things, but you can't even take what they say for 100% fact because the reality is when they're out there, they're obviously reacting very differently. And then they might say things in a press conference, I guess, to avoid media drama or whatever. 
Well, and why would you take it whenever we have data anyways? It's like the argument that I was in all last week in Phoenix with, you know, about Brad Faxon saying that whenever he was putting his best, that he had to mark the comebackers. Okay, let's see. So, so wait, so wait, you're, you're, saying, you're saying he was implying that he was hitting them really hard, basically, past the hole. A hundred, yes, exactly. He's saying, when I was putting my best, I had to mark the comebackers. And so Lou Stagner, who's my, my, my data partner, he yeah. so I was like, go run this thing. He goes and runs it. And it's just hilarious because not only, and I don't want to quote this because I haven't looked at the actual numbers enough to just be quoting them, but basically – he, he, he leaves more his, – his shot pattern is centered less far past the hole than the average tour players. And then the way that I look at data, I'm like, well, if I were sitting here watching this, I would be like, well, but he said his good rounds. So I told Lou, I'm like, I want you to segregate out his 25% best rounds, his 25% best tournaments, and I want you to compare it both to, get to his average and to the PGA Tour averages. And in his best rounds, it gets even closer to the hole. <laughs> like it's even less – it's, it's just hilarious. Like, yeah, I don't think Faxon's intentionally being malicious. What would he care? I think he believes what he's saying, but it's some narrative that he's told himself somewhere along the way, and it's just not true. So my job on Twitter, aside from being the, the police, is basically <laughs> to police those comments. Because if a kid hears that and so hears Brad Faxon say, I have to mark my comebackers, there's only one way that can be interpreted, and that's hit your putts hard. And that's uh, where it's funny because I, I do like Mark Brody, but he and I are texting about that. And he was like, I can interpret it different than that. I'm like, yeah, you're an Ivy League business professor who's studied this data more than anyone else on the planet. You can. I can assure you a sophomore at New Mexico State is hearing hit his putts hard there. Right. It's um, it's amazing because you can apply that same concept to any tour player talking about anything golfing related where it's like, yeah, if I'm trying to do something like Rory talking about his transition and he's saying, you know, I'm trying to bump my hip sideways and trying to get into my left side. And I'm like, dude, if you actually do what this guy's telling you, you're going to hit it so much worse. Like, stop listening to professionals when they're talking about their golf swing because their idea of what they're doing is so skewed from what's actually happening in reality that oftentimes, if you actually take that for fact, you're going to go down a dark path and get actually get worse. Well, that's the whole idea of feel versus real, which I, I get annoyed with all with other people when they're talking about that too, because I'm like, yeah, I get it. But, well, yes, there's no reason to listen to what they're saying they're doing when you can actually just look at what they're doing. Like, again, this, this, this guy that I'm arguing with about number 17 at TPC Scottsdale is so infuriating today because he's like he, – I had organized this thing to try to be a coherent conversation with him. But he was saying that, that Ricky in 2016 hit driver in the water long on the 71st hole, and it was the, wrong, uh, it was the wrong shot because it was playing downwind. And even though it's 360 yards to the back water, Ricky's just going to bring that into play too often. I'm like, well, I had organized these, these images from the actual tee shot he hit on 17, the putts while he was there, the playoff, to show the flags were dead still. There was no win at all. It might have been downwind two miles an hour, like just a barely downwind. And as I'm showing this to him, he's like, no, the announcer said it was downwind. I'm like, I'm showing you the video right here. <laughs> the flag is not moving. He's like, yeah, but the announcer said it was. Like, stop, <laughs> stop listening to what the announcer is saying, basically. <laughs> stop talking. Like, this is, it was insane what I was dealing with because he wanted to fulfill his narrative that he's right. 
He's throw, he's using every defense possible to ignore all intellectual honesty whatsoever. Again, I'm not saying the guy was being dishonest. He couldn't see through his own bias that he was not, that he just wasn't objectively analyzing the situation because he wanted to be correct, because he wrote some sort of an article on this back in 2016 that he has to be able to stand behind as opposed to being like, huh, really wasn't down when, wow, he really did catch a bad break on that down slope. Yeah, I guess. But to just unilaterally that... <laughs> say. Yeah, go for it. I said to just unilaterally say this, this was the wrong club where it's impossible that he's not letting the outcome impact his decision. He's just, yeah, that was an outlier. It's a bad deal. Just like if he mishits a three wood a little bit and he's in that bunker at 70 yards, he can't get three wood onto the green. So he's always going to be chipping from short driver. He's, I mean, he literally hit the one in a hundred shot. He's going to get long and in the water. Like it's the, the back neck back there is only nine yards wide. It's impossible to just run that many shots through there. Everything has to be perfect. And unfortunately for Ricky, the stars were against him. And so it didn't work out. That does not make the decision wrong. It's, 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 a, it's a trivial example. But if we're sitting here flipping quarters, and every time that you get it right, I give you $10. And every time I get it right, you give me 20 If we flip a coin, you get it right, and I give you $10. Did you win money there? I would argue, no, you didn't your expected value from that bet was for sure negative. And yes, right. on this one trial, you did take $10 from me, but by even accepting the bet, you lost money in life. Basically, and if we, if we run a hundred trials, I'm losing is essentially what it is. If we run seven, you're losing. The odds of you winning <laughs> in seven trials of that are very, very slim. Right. So yes, out to a hundred, you have no chance whatsoever. <laughs> Again, in, in seven, all I have to do is win. If I win two, I shouldn't say that. If, if in if in nine, if I win three, that's I win sixty. If you win the other six, you win sixty. We push. So if in nine trials, if I only win thirty-three percent of them, we're going to push. Very rarely, or over nine trials, are you going to do better than that? Right. And anything, anything beyond nine attempts, I'm losing without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. <clears throat> and so, again, it's just very difficult in golf. It's very difficult in golf because there isn't any sort of a concrete, you know, in the moment way to say, like, the expectation from driver right here is 3.5. The expectation from three what is 3.55. I'll even admit that's not that big of a difference. And it, it, even when I told the guy, I'm like, I'll be perfectly honest. You're making me argue something here that I don't even want to argue. I don't think it really matters between the two choices. I, I think that in that exact situation, in that playoff with Fowler, because it was playing fast, I think he has about the same scoring average with Driver and Threewood. But the key is he had decided before the event that it was Driver. And now if he's going to get out there and in real time, if it's blowing downwind materially, that's a different situation. But if he's going to get out there and just try to choose a different club because of the situation, yes, it might, it might even work out there to a tenth of a stroke better. I even said this to the guy this morning. Maybe three wood is 0.1 strokes better. But if you're giving him 
the, the latitude to change his decision in that situation. Then on number 15, the Island Green par five, where he's decided he's not hitting anything more than four iron at it. Well, now in the final round, well, damn it, I got two iron in. Well, I'm feeling really good. I kind of need a birdie here. I'm going to go for it. He's overriding the objective decision that was made before the tournament there because of emotion, because of the situation. And if he overrides that decision and the decision on 17, that's a net loss. So you just have to lay out your game plan. There are modifications in decade for course conditions, for, you know, weather. But if you just think you're going to all of a sudden make a, a materially better decision for the, for the actual scoring average in real time, it's just not going to happen. And for every one to time you do get it right, you're going to make five poor decisions for a net loss. Period. So basically avoid emotional decisions at all costs. 100%. I mean, that's, again, it's, it's cause even this, the guy was arguing with me about every decision in life is based in math. Like again, period. That's, that's not even something that can be decided. How else would you ever decide between two options unless you're deciding one option is better for you for whatever reason it has a 5149 edge in your head. Every decision is based in math. The trivial right. example is crossing a street. Anything less than 100%, you're probably going to wait until the car passes. So every decision is based in math. Emotions can't make a more optimal decision. An optimal decision is an optimal decision. Introducing emotions can't make you make a more optimal decision. They can only introduce making adjustments that weren't necessarily valid on reality or valid in actual application it just doesn't it just doesn't work i mean at all you're talking to a math guy so i mean i personally love it i've i've applied your system a lot i work with two players right now one on the corn ferry one on the pga tour champions who've started their seasons and they mm -hmm. both finished runner-up in their first event of the year literally following the system of I may play good golf. Let me work on what I'm working on, but let me not play dumb and aggressive. And I mean, the results speak for themselves at the end of the day. Right. So, um, I'm, much. I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of what you're doing, dude. I think it's great. Can you talk to us a little bit about, uh, the idea of, and I guess this is more for the everyday golfer, not so much for the tour player, but the idea of lowering your handicap in terms of removing doubles or, or bogeys, as opposed to making more birdies. Because I know there's a few graphics sure. I've seen out there of, you know, <laughs> the, the 90 golfer versus the scratch golfer is not making that many more birdies. And people have this misconception of, like, I got to start firing at pins to get better. Well, so much of what I've taught over the last six years was initially based in math and then based in my ability as a player to, to kind of, you know, deem what is and isn't doable, if you will. And so it's this whole idea that it's, intent, it's, it's easier to intentionally not lose strokes than it is to intentionally gain strokes. It's, it's easier to intentionally not make bogeys than it is to intentionally make birdies. You, you just have to trust that birdies will just be there. And so what you were talking about a second ago, because of our stats portal in, in the Decade app, I know that a 95 shooter averages only one birdie less per round than a 79 shooter. The other 15 shots are from bogey and higher avoidance. 
Okay, I, I, I just wait. I, I need to cut you off because I need to make this aware for everybody. Like, listen to what he's saying. <laughs> he's saying that you are saving 16 strokes from shooting 95 to 79, and only one of those 16 strokes is a birdie. Meaning <laughs> you don't play dumb and you follow a system that is proven mathematically. You are going to save 15 shots by not making doubles and triples aiming at poor targets. Well, that's how you're going to go from 95. That, that's where the, 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 the 95 to 79 shooter is going to do it is, is by, by eliminating those just pedantic mistakes. The, the I hit it in the trees. Well, I don't want to be in the trees. Well, you are. <laughs> well, I want to get out. Well, you better get out in one. And, and even for an 87 shooter, typically pitching it down there 30 or 50 yards short of the green, getting it onto the green, making a whole bunch of bogeys. Obviously, you're an 87 shooter because you don't have the greatest physical skill sets. Every once in a while, you're going to to miss the green with that wedge or hit it on and three-putt it or whatever. I, I get all that. That's all baked into the math. But it is far easier to do that than by trying to hit some sort of a crazy cut or draw up around the green. And that's where you hit the tree and leave it in the trees and now doubles the best you're doing. And you just don't have to make that mistake very often. The, the math is much cleaner for a, a shot out of bounds. If, if I hit a tee shot out of bounds, I am now re-teeing and I'm hitting my third shot. So if I hit it out of bounds 10% of the time and it's a two-shot penalty, basically every time I hit a tee shot, back to that same math that a coin flip is, every time that I hit a tee shot that has 10% of my shot pattern out of bounds, I'm, I'm taking a point two penalty, whether I actually hit it out of bounds or I hit it in the fairway on my average score. I'm taking a point two penalty. The same thing exists from the trees. If I hit a shot that I'm going to hit the trees 30% of the time on, and that's going to cost me a shot. Every time I hit that shot, whether successful or not for my average score, it costs me 0.3 strokes. And you just can't overcome that. And so you really need to be able to be getting it out of the trees basically every single time you're in there because you just can't hit the trees 30% of the time and not have it be a total liability on your score. So in, in terms of, <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. In terms of, um, I guess, avoiding the hazards, then what determines, I know you came up with a method in terms of the cone of dispersion and all that, but what is your method of choosing club selection off the tee? How do you go about it? Uh, I mean, off the tee, it's, it's interesting because I hate using the words aggressive or conservative, but I want you to be as aggressive as you possibly can off the tee. I want you hitting driver as often as you possibly can. Um, and this is where it's hard because approach shot strategy is somewhat generic, but tee shot strategy, if you hit it under 260, you should probably be hitting driver almost everywhere. And most people do. I mean, you know, if a hole's super tight, you'll get people that drop back to three wood, but really the, the key with the choice between driver and three wood, you only hit maybe five or 8% more of the fairways with three wood than you do with driver. Like the, the driver's got such great technology in it. You really hit a pretty consistent, I mean, again, relative to your handicap, consistent shape and, and trajector with the driver versus what you do with the three wood. So really dropping back to three wood might help you on five to 8% of shots, but it makes 100% of your shots, 30 or 40 yards longer we're so, dropping all the way back to two yeah so i, I don't i don't want to keep cutting you off but you would essentially say no, that good. no you so you would essentially say that hitting driver is not going to be that much more offline than hitting 
three wood essentially. So you're better off hitting driver if you're a short hitter. Pretty much. Pretty much. I mean, even if you're a long hitter, I just rarely try to get guys to hit three wood. Three wood's just not going to be the right decision very often for a tour caliber player. The reason you hit, or I shouldn't say tour caliber, for anyone who hits it over 270. The only time you would actually go to three wood over driver is because it's actually, it's going to remove a hazard on one side by staying short of it. So if a lake starts, let's say that you hit your driver 300 and a lake starts at 285, if you drop back to three wood, that should, in theory, eliminate that lake. That would probably be okay. But if the lake were drop, if the hole's 460 and the lake is all the way along the left-hand side of the fairway, I mean, like number 18 in Houston on the PGA Tour, if anyone can picture it in their head, there's a lake along the entire left-hand side. Right. Dropping back to three wood versus driver accomplishes nothing. You're just making 100% of your shots 40 yards longer for a tour player. So hit driver. It's just a tight <laughs> hit driver. Yeah. And then the flip side is, is if a hole is so tight that it really requires like a two iron, rarely are you going to have a 490-yard hole like 18 in Houston is that has a bunker right and a lake left. Like it just, it just doesn't happen very often. That hole might be 420, 400, but – just very rarely, unless you're playing a Greg Norman course, going to have something that's just too tight for driver or three wood and has any length whatsoever. And so really architects are doing a pretty good job of holding your hand and trying to get you to make the right decision. The thing that I'll say is that just rarely is three wood that the, the right decision. I don't want to um, say who I'm thinking of, but there's a few courses I can, I can think of right now at the moment that they play on tour where uh, there's like ridiculous boulders or craters or rough lines in the middle of the fairway. What are your thoughts on, um, <laughs> I, you already know who I'm talking about, but like, what are your thoughts on my sure. but let's say where there's like a massive hole in the middle of the fairway. That's kind of ridiculous. You know, I think it's stupid. I mean, <laughs> It's just if a hazard can't be removed with skill, like I just don't see the point of it. So, but this is where it's actually interesting. It's 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 I think a paradox where I would hate having one hole like that because way too much variance is then placed on it. But actually, if you had four holes like that in a four-round event where you're hitting 16 tee shots like that, then you're actually removing variance because if you play that hole correctly and just hit driver directly, and and I shouldn't say the one with the hole because I actually don't even know what the caves penalty is is that just a hazard i don't even know i assume it's just a hazard right? i think it's just like a giant bunker ball? yeah it's just a giant bunker that you have to punch out of yeah you know so that's an actual one-shot penalty but like for for bunkers and this is the thing that's so hard is like like i was walking a practice round uh in phoenix this week and zach johnson is on the right of number 18 he's at three wood off the tee and I, i'm listening to him over there with his caddy talking about the decision of their versus driver and I'm like, with Zach specifically, like, well, he's not the highest club head speed guy. He's pretty shallow. This thick winter rye rough is not good for him at all. Now, that bunker, what he was saying specifically, is like, you know, but that lip is dead. The lip is dead, and you're probably not going to be in it. Out of all the balls that are in that bunker, maybe 10, maybe 15% of them are actually basically screwed in that lip. Right. But other than that, it's just it's a, it's just a fairway bunker shot that he's going to do better from the fairway bunker, especially considering it's 30 yards closer. 
than he's going to do from the rough. And so here's a guy who's obviously one of the greatest players in the history of the game, but he still is having trouble coming up with, I mean, pretty basic, the, the logical fallacies making there is assuming he'll be in the lip. You probably won't be. But again, even just the math, the strictest of math, the, the strokes gain numbers, let me pull it out real quick here, a fairway bunker, 160 yards, the expected score is 3.28. He was back there 20 yards further and in the rough. The, excuse me, 30 yards further and in the rough. The expected score from 190 in the rough on the PGA Tour is 3.37. So even if he did hit 100% of his tee shots in that fairway bunker, he'd actually still be better off. Right. So basically, uh, he, made, he, made, he made the wrong club choice, essentially. 100%. I mean, I don't know what he actually wound up hitting in the tournament. I pulled his caddy aside because I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to say it to Zach because it was it, that would be so out of line. It's not even funny. But I pulled yeah. his caddy aside and just like, hey, you know, here's well, we're up down the green. Here's here's how you can look at that decision. He's just you just can't you can't compare one outcome to one outcome. And that's again what I feel like the guy who's arguing with me about number seventeen at Scottsdale. He's letting the results of one shot dictate the entire thing. I, well, I. I'd rather be back here in the in the fairway than up there in the rough. That's not how it works. It's just it's just not how it works. Zach, again, thinking I'd rather be back here in the rough than up there in the lip. Yeah, that's probably true. But you're probably not going to be in the lip. Right. Like the, the the odds mathematically are against you ending up in that position to begin with. So why make that shot? Yeah. Well, it's like when people complain saying, you know, if they have a a, a shot that winds up in a in a lip of the bunker where they're having to stand outside of the bunker like totally screwed. Like I got, that's bad luck. It's not bad luck. That's math. 8% of the time you're in a bunker, you're going to have that stance. That's not bad luck at all. Right. It's unfortunate. (laughs) It was unlikely to happen, but it's still going to happen. All right, dude, you're, you're obviously very confident in what you're talking about. So I want to put you on the spot (laughs) just a little, just a little bit. Talk, talk to us a little bit about uh, the 10th at Riviera. What are your thoughts about that whole you hit you you hit it up and around the green every single time, and you reassess where you're at. Again, the the traditional thing is if the pin's in the back finger, you lay it up, and if it's up in the front bulb, you go for it. The reason that the math says that that's correct is because the players, when they get out of position to the back pin, so they hit it long, so they're back there by 11 t, and the pin's in the back right. So from them coming back to it, it's over there to the far left. It's only eight yards wide over there. Like it's a, it's dead, but it's not that hard to hit it onto the front bulb and then try to two put it from 50 feet, which you're only going to do, you know, 70% of the time. Right. Where they screw themselves up is they get going back and forth over there. That's how they make double or triple. But if you lay it up over there to the left, unless you hit it the perfect distance, you're going to be coming across that again, eight yard wide back area. And if you're short of having the perfect angle to it, everything's running away from you. It's an, it's such a hard wedge shot. It's, it's, you've got about a realistically about a four or five yard circle. You can land that shot in and have it hit the green. I'm not talking about hit it close, have it hit the green. And so it's a tough one, but so much of what I, I, I talk about is getting aggressive off the tee and then reassessing. And so same thing with like number 17, 
the the at Scottsdale, the back pin is dead. Again, I walked that whole whole ten times with different players last week. It runs away from you a lot more than you actually think it does. And if you hit driver and you happen to get it past the middle of the green and right, you're pretty much done. You you just are basically needing to play it out sideways to 25 feet and two putt it and move on. But if you lay up, it's not like you can skip a wedge back there to five feet anyways. You're going to hit too many nose long in the water. You're you're kind of playing it to the same place that you can anyways. But the difference is with driver, every once in a while, 20-ish percent of the time maybe, you're going to drive the green and be in a spot where you can lag it up there to, to inside of six feet and have a great look at birdie. You can't I, – I can't emphasize enough how important that math is of actually getting it on the green to capture two-putt birdies does for destroying scoring averages. I mean, but conversely, I can't overemphasize how much hitting it, you know, long and then trying to to hit the little nipper over the bunker, I can't emphasize how much that destroys your scoring average in the wrong way. Um, you know, I walked with a player this week who for the for the back right pin to so right over there cut just in front of the bunker, we hit a bunch of pitch shots from over there short right it's super you know it's way uphill up up winter rye and it's straight downhill all the way to the back bunker and he was hitting some really good shots that basically were going into the fringe long about 25 feet long of where we were you know had the hypothetical pin down and so he against my suggestion laid up he laid up in the right side of the fairway so now he's got a 90 yard shot coming to that exact same situation like that sucks more than trying to chip it there and sure enough, he didn't. He he missed the green over there, right? To where now that's where we were trying to hypothesize our second shot to be coming from. Now he's hitting his third. Like it's just so he just he, he just lost a stroke because he was playing differently than what you suggested initially. Hundred percent. I mean, it's just it's just hilarious to watch. Where it's like, yep, that's not going to work out. And and there's so much loss aversion that they just can't get out of their own way sometimes. <clears throat> Really, it's really interesting to watch. <laughs> I would imagine, especially up close when you're experiencing it, that it's kind of a mind fuck of saying, like, look, the odds are totally in your favor to do this. Why would you go against it? Yeah. I mean, again, that's the whole reason I went out there was to to have these conversations with this player. <clears throat> I mean, he was a new player first time last week, and it's just so funny to follow along and be like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing here? Why did I go to Phoenix? But All that's right, dude. the point is that if these yeah. tour players are having that much trouble with it, think about your junior, your collegian, your club guy. I do believe there's a ton of guys on the mini tour and the corn fairy tour that, again, the guys on tour for the most part, they're not idiots. They're really, really good at playing with pretty good strategy. Do they stray from it? Yes, they're not infallible. Actually, Tiger didn't. Tiger played pretty much perfect all the time. And it's just interesting to watch – how hard it is to take a leap of faith and just give me six starts where you're just going to do it. What if it doesn't work out? It's not going to be ideal for you probably, but what if it does? Okay. Here's a, here's a good one for you. You kind of mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast, um, obviously you don't think short game can gain you a bunch of shots. Two part question. First of all, where do you think players gain the most shots on tour? So where do you think, based on the data that you've been analyzing, is the most valuable for tour players? And I guess to follow up on that, what do you think about players 
uh, and their short game? Do they, should they, are they putting too much emphasis on it? Should they be putting less? I think that short games, for the most part, if you, get, if you go up to a tour player, you know, better's obviously always better. So, yes, guys like Tiger, it's an amazing short game. Like, it's ridiculous. Guys like Brian Gay, Stricker. I mean, it, yes, better's better. But I do think the amount of time required to get it great, like, it's just so much that you would probably be better spent, better time spent with more long game practice for the vast majority of people. And then really just trusting, you know what? just my general kinesthetic awareness with a golf club in my hand, that actually is making my short game better. Again, this is a point that I know will make a lot of instructors heads explode. And I'm not, (laughs) I I want to be very clear. I'm not arguing against practicing your short game. I'm just saying it's not the be all end all because a lot of just week to week variance is what cleans up a lot of short game things to whether, to to whether or not they had a, a, a 75% save rate for the week or 25%. And so it is super important, but it's just not, it's usually not time well spent. Now, if we have a bell curve of 100% of people, I do think 15% are just materially better. And I also think that just 15% are materially worse. Those 15% that are worse, yes, they need to either get rid of the yips most likely or just get proficient. And, and so then they'll be in that inner 70% and then it's basically week to week variance. So what you mean the first part was so you mean <clears throat> proficient enough to where they can just get the ball in the green and give themselves a chance basically. Just don't screw it up. Yeah. I mean again if I hit a chip shot that in theory distance control wise not directional I might leave it 12 feet short or 12 feet long. Just having a week where you just happen to hit another couple of shots towards the middle of your distribution like that's just, again, that's just variance variance within your shot pattern that is is just, it's the most important part of it. Again, I don't want a person to have a 20 foot short to 20 foot long pattern, but once you've got it to within reason, it's just, it's just hitting a couple of decent shots at the right time, which I don't think is, again, I set this guy up earlier when I was like, so are you saying that, that on 17, you're just supposed to man up and hit a good shot? Yep. Why didn't he do that every time then? It's just not how it works. So you can't just say sometimes it's just time to hit a good shot because otherwise you should do that every time. Get really good. Trust the variance within your shot pattern. Let it pan out. What was the first part again? Yeah, the first part was basically where do most players on tour gain strokes as a whole? If you have to quantify the importance based on the data you've been analyzing. It's, a, it's, a, it's basically an unanswerable question, and this is where strokes gained is great, but it also, it's, it's got some weaknesses because, you know, so while one thing may look great for the week, it, it, it honestly might not be. They might have regist- not registered a shot correctly, whatever that might be, but with drivers specifically, if I have a target that is the left lip of a fairway bunker through the fairway, if I hit the fairway, but I miss my target yet 10 yards left or 10 yards, right. It's basically going to be the exact same strokes gain shot. The, the, I don't need to be as accurate with my T shot to have essentially the same results. There's just a giant circle out there. That's kind of the same or ellipse most likely. That's kind of all the same strokes gain. Okay. With your approach shots though, you do have to hit it 
closer to the hole and on the green in order to materially gain shots. That to me is also a function of variance within your shot pattern. So approach shots are for sure where you gain the most against the competition typically. But I also don't think that's something you can intentionally do. So I find it, I don't know if a non sec order is the right word, but kind of a like, yeah, so. Because like driving would historically appear to be not as important, but it's the old cliche, if you can't putt, you can't score, but if you can't drive, you can't play. I drive the ball really well. I can only hit a cut. And for the most part, I still am in the 115 or 16 club head speed as a 46-year-old. So I still can hit it relatively far. But I'm really good at doing the same thing over and over again. That's basically the only reason I was able to shoot 11 under for the two stages of Q school that I went to was because I drove it really well. The rest of my game was very, I mean, average at best. And I mean, not even average, average at that level, average for a guy who doesn't play much golf at best. And, and so getting that sharper would require a lot of effort because now I do actually be need be able to hit it close to my actual target. Whereas my driver, if I'm in the general vicinity of my target, it's going to kind of be fine. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. I've, I've, I've seen, <laughs> I've seen your golf swing. I, I know where you're strong and where you're weak. Trust me. I've seen what's going on out there, but uh, your game is very good. Okay, last question for you, because I know that um, you probably got a lot going on, and just to get us to do this was uh, pretty intense because you're a busy schedule. But oh. what are the um, what are the most common mistakes you've seen from, I guess, the average golfer? Where could they improve the most to give them the most long-lasting results? Is it just following the system and making sure they don't do a dumb, aggressive error that they shouldn't be doing? pretty much it's tough because we've we've had the decade light app for you know since day one three four years whatever it is now and i really just made it as a placeholder within the app store for people to get it to then buy the elite app and so as i'm building this foundations product i'm making content with the club level golfer in mind with the junior golfer who's still averaging around 80 in mind and it's been honestly it's been a lot of fun like trying to problem solve for them. But basically what I've really been keying on it is they don't have a clue how far they actually hit the ball. And it's, it's funny because it's just like a tour player. I, I had this conversation with 10 tour players last week where, you know, it's like, Oh, it's kind of fun to make fun of these amateurs, how clueless they are with how far they hit the ball. And like, Oh yeah, they don't have a clue. You don't either. We all <laughs> tour players included play for this like 80th percentile shot. What the deal is is for a tour player, it's a lot closer to their average or their median. It's, it's closer to it, but they're still playing for the perfect shot, which is off by a couple yards. So whereas it's a glaring mistake for an amateur, it's not quite as glaring for a tour player, but the, the average tour player leaves more shots short of the hole than the top 25 strokes gain approach players do. Those players either hit it more solid, which certainly is part of it, or they have a better just fundamental understanding of how to get the, the, their, their golf shot past the hole. And so I think that the main thing amateurs really don't understand is a, how far they hit their clubs. And so what I tell people is just, you know, hit 30 or 50 shots with your six iron and your nine iron, and then kick out the 25% shortest and take the average of the remaining 75%. 
that's your number with that club. So for me, as an example, let's, let's just make up a number. That number is, is 157, but I know my perfect eight irons, 160. Yeah, it is. And you're probably not going to hit it perfect. It's really hard because it sucks when you do hit it perfect and you flag it and it goes 12 feet long, <laughs> but that's not, that's the outlier more than it is the norm. So right. really not understanding how far they hit their clubs. And then because of things like Faxon talking about, you know, I had to mark my comebackers. They just don't understand that speed is the most important. It's the biggest separator between them and a tour caliber putter is just poor speed. I mean, and it's not even, it's not even close how their line again, obviously a scratch handicap does not hit their putts on the same line. A tour player does just like a 10 doesn't hit their putts on the same line as scratch does, but all of them will have a much deeper shot pattern distance control wise than width wise from direction or green reading. Speed so and know yeah. how far you hit your irons. <laughs> basically what you're essentially saying, assuming I understood correctly is that, you know, tour player to 25 handicap, the variance of what's more important might change subtly, but at the end of the day, what's important is what's important and people are making the same mistakes. Yep. Pretty much. Uh, the severity I, changes. Yeah. yeah. I, I love it, dude. I, I, I love oh. your system. I mean, like I've told you kind of from the beginning, I, I obviously follow it very closely. Um, super appreciative that you sent me a bunch of those cards there with the yardages. I give them to my players all the time. So, <laughs> You, got you know, it. we started off with two runner-up finishes with my tour players, so obviously people know what they're doing. <laughs> At the end of the day, nice. obviously, you have a system that works. Well, again, these tour players, for the most part, a lot of like for a tour player, a lot of them, it's just getting them to really recognize what they know is correct and then commit to it, as opposed to just saying, oh, man, I never thought of that. Like most of them, yeah, I kind of get it, but dang it, I really, I hate trying to, to adhere to it because then it doesn't let me just shoot from the hip. And that's, you know, just harder to do. And so getting guys to just be patient and commit and discipline. And again, trust, like I understand the week of the Masters, I get it. You want to win. Probably not going to. The only way you're going to is by setting up the dominoes, as many of them in your favor as you can, and then letting variance play out and accepting you've got a 2 or a 3% win rate for the vast majority of tour players. I mean – Odds are you're not going to win. And, and just so often is not getting in your own way is a key. Like I hate saying it because, you know, Francisco Molinari, he got in his own way at the Masters. There's just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And that's unfortunate because he's a super great dude and just didn't let it happen. Well, dude, I um, I appreciate you coming on. I know you're a busy guy, so I'll let you. Uh... You got it. No worries. Go take care of whatever you got to do this week, but um, keep doing what you're doing, man. I, you're you're changing a lot of minds. I think that you're slowly starting to convince the golf industry about um, not just the necessarily the mathematics, but just in terms of understanding how math plays a part in in percentages and club selection and all that. So I uh, yeah, I love it. You got it, buddy. Thank you for your time. Thanks, my man. I'll uh, I'll be talking to you soon, buddy. All right. Take care. So I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Uh, Scott loves to talk, so it's always fun for me when you can get someone to open up and really express their opinion 
um, in a way that is backed up with data. So that's what Scott is all about. A lot of mathematics involved with the system, but I, I obviously love that. So I hope you guys liked it. Um, just a quick reminder for everybody, next week is actually going to be our monthly mailbag episode. So we'll be answering your questions that you guys are going to send in. So stay tuned for that one. So that's going to be fun. And, uh, you know, be sure to check us out um, on social media. So Twitter, Instagram, the works, we're all over the place. At Shkeen Golf, which is my own personal handle, S-H-K-E-E-N Golf. Or our Academy's page, which is basically my last name, Golf. So Nak Giovanni Golf. Uh, and we're always posting giveaways and, and stuff. So, uh, yeah, stay tuned for next week. It's going to be a fun one.